All right. I'm here today to make you glad, mad, or sad. Anybody ever heard that before? Everybody knows Pastor Han for years, every time he'd get up, that's what he would say. I thought it was somewhat unusual first time I heard it, and then I realized that Jesus offended every, everybody that knew him, including the 12 that were closest to him, uh, all the, the Pharisees, everybody else. So all he was trying to do was just follow the pattern of Jesus. Uh, let me read something here and uh, see what y'all think, because this, this is going to be in line with what we're going to be sharing on today. Uh, is this true? Eve ate an apple in the garden. We all believe that, right? How many times have we heard that in church? Okay. The serpent was Satan. True or false? Really? False? Okay. All the animals marched into the, onto the ark two by two. True or false? Well, there's some learned people here. There are ten commandments. True or false? Really? The Immaculate Conception refers to Jesus. Okay, some said true. I didn't hear anybody say false. A lot of us are playing it safe by not saying anything at all. I noticed that. There were three wise men. A prodigal son is one who leaves and returns. Which one is it, true or false? Really? Okay. Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Constantine created the canon of the New Testament. Probably a lot of people here wouldn't know it unless you were in the Bible college. We covered that at times. Okay, and somewhere in the Bible it says, God helps those who helps themselves. That's in Hezekiah, right? No, each one of these is false. Now, it's always fun when I'm up here and say something like that because some of y'all just did this. Because it just went right in and just dealt with some tradition that we've got in us from the traditional teaching in the church where the Bible doesn't literally say those things, but we've been taught that. It's been talked about so many times over the course of the years, we've just accepted it as being true. So when somebody comes up and says something to us, then it's, it's an offense to what I have been taught and believe and what I stand on and what I've built my life on. That's awesome, right? That we get offended at, at something that's a lie that we're believing. And that's one of the things we've got to be very careful of. It's uh, much more dangerous to believe a lie than it is to tell one. Because there are a lot of things that are going to come forth from that believing. And that system, if we're not careful, is going to really do a lot of damage in our life and our heart. So we're going to talk a little bit today about authority specifically. The title of this message is Offended by the Lord. And that could be offended by my boss. It could be offended by my pastor. It could be offended by my dad or my mom. It could be offended by a good friend. It could be uh, offended by President Biden or President Trump or President Reagan, whatever president, or uh, Governor Ivey in the state of Alabama, or whoever the, the authority is that's there in life. We're going to be offended by them at one point or another. Everybody needs to go ahead and accept that. How many of us have never been offended with our parents? Raise your hand. Well, none of my kids are here. They would raise their hands because they, they were raised under perfection, right? So, no, that's not going to happen. And we've got to go ahead and we've got to deal with offense. 
and we've got to flow with that and, and uh, overcome it, right? So where did the fence start? Where's the first place in the Bible that it's mentioned? Genesis 1, God created all the heaven and all the earth and all that is therein, and he created the animals. You get into Genesis chapter 2, it begins to, you really, honestly, there was no 2, 3, 4, 5. They were all one document, and everything actually was meant to flow together in the narrative there. So Adam begins to name the animals. He named those animals after the character that he saw in them, and those names he gave them were very accurate. As such that the, we're taught that in the Bible, that names reflect character, right? Even God and his names. So the, the, all of the creatures were named by Adam. He didn't find a helpmeet that was sufficient to meet his needs. So God puts him to sleep, and we know that uh, Eve came forth, Ava in the Hebrew. She comes forth, and she becomes the helpmeet that he needed. Now, the difference between Adam and Eve and the animals were God just created the animals out of the dust. But with Adam and Eve, he created them out of the dust, and then he, he breathed his breath into them. So now they have the majestic nature is there. You've got the Adamic bestial nature that's there. So we can't stop at the end of chapter 2 and, and totally disassociate that with chapter 3. It's a continuation. So now we come into the Garden of Eden, and there's a creature that comes in there who stands on his two legs, hind legs. He's an animal. He's a, the serpent, the shiny one. He's there. He begins to go in, and he talks with Eve. He did not go to Adam, remember? Now, keeping in mind that this is connected directly with Adam going out and looking over every animal to find one that was suitable to be his helpmate. What does that bring to the equation now? What do you think the makeup of this bestial creature who did not have the majestic nature in them, how do you think they felt toward Eve who had been brought in and created as a replacement for them? Aha, here we go. So the actions of the serpent in the garden, a creature, who was shiny, and it said it was naked, just as Adam and Eve were naked also. The actions were rooted in being offended right off the bat. That's where it all comes in. And that serpent put into Eve the awareness, self-awareness, and, and making man basically a good humanistic individual, then I'm God, I make the rules, I decide what's right and wrong, I decide what I'm gonna do with my life. Nobody's got the right to speak into it except me. Because that's, that's what happens. Our, our university over here is very astute at equipping us for that type of a, a lifestyle. Praise God, God's delivered me from a lot of the things they taught me over there. So that's where we're going back to. We go back to first principles. The offense came in the Garden of Eden. Now we see what we're having to deal with, and we all have to deal with being offended, especially against those in authority. So let's look at some of the basic fundamentals here of the, the principles on this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. The elders which are among you, I exhort. So this is talking about church uh, authority and church government now. 
who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, or, but of a ready mind. So for you that are elders here, those that have a calling, you should be already feeding people. You should be, as you walk the walk, there should be people you should be praying for. There should be those that you're going to speak into their lives. You're going to have opportunities with a formal setting of teaching, but primarily most of what you're going to do is going to be one-on-one and sowing into them. Why do I believe that and why do I know it? That's what they did in the first century church. And we're in New Testament Christianity right now, and everybody in here has that commission to go. Right? So there should be somebody daily, if I'm just looking and sensitive, I'm going to be sowing into it, and I'm going to be planting the seed of the kingdom in there. Now, I'm not going to do it because I'm going to want to lord over people. I'm not going to do it because I have to, but I'm going to do it because Jesus loves me, and his love is so profound in my life, I've got to share it. It's, I, I want to touch people's lives and allow them to, to have the freedom and the blessings that I walk in myself. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I mean, we all want others to, to, especially our loved ones, but willingly, not for filthy lucre. You know, I was doing what I'm doing right now back when I had my business and I was being paid to do it. And I would do it right now if I was, was not getting paid. And I'll do it only in the future when I get paid to do it or not. Have, do I have that demeanor and that makeup in my heart if I'm called to be an elder? Because it's not about making a lot of money. I'm going to tell you that. It's not about ambition or anything along that line. But it's having a ready mind, just being ready to do what God wants me to do as an elder. Now, if I do that, then uh, verse 3 is going to be easy. Neither is being lords. I'm not going to lord it over people. I'm going to uh, be an example in, in uh, replace of that, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, and this word appear in the Greek is not the second coming of Christ. This is the sanctification that takes place in the heart of man that's been in his presence and worshiping him and allowing him to do the works of Holy Ghost cleaning us up so that the image of Jesus Christ is on us. So everywhere that I walk, people begin to see that, hey, there's something different about that person. And the love of God just overwhelms and just flows in the overflow as I touch people's lives. That's what that means there. You shall receive the crown of glory. See, his glory is going to be on me and it's not going to fade away. Then it says this about the young ones. Submit yourselves to the elder. All right, so you guys that are DDT, y'all better straighten up. That right, Josh? It says submit. That's the word hupotasso. Hupotasso. Y'all remember what that means? Josh can get up here and preach this better than I can. Hupotasso is a saying Greek word for a wife submitting herself to her husband. It's not allowing him to be Lord of your life and, and lead you into sin and make you do anything that he wants you to do, whether it's godly or whether it's evil. No, that's not what that means. There's a qualifying factor there that the husband is to, lay his, uh, to, to approach his wife and to lay his life down even as Christ laid his life down for the church. So if I'm doing that as a husband, she is willingly going to pursue me and she's going to want to do and, uh, and uh, allow me to lead and move into the things together that God has for us. Because I'm going to have the heart of, of Jesus, really, for my wife. I'm going to take care of her. That's the same thing it is for, for uh, anybody that's in authority over us 
There is a qualifying factor for authority for us that we've got to be careful what we do and do it the way that the, the Word lays it out. And that's authority on every level, pretty much. Now, children, you don't have that option, guys. There's the forced authority in you guys. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, so each one of us should be subject to each other, but clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due season. And those are the principles that we, we walk in in church leadership if we're going to be effective in leading people. Going over to government at a deeper level in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Personally, I believe this is not just all government that's out there. I think this is church government as well. You can apply it to civil government if you want to. That's, a, that's my personal opinion, okay? So, let every soul be subject, hupotasso, unto the higher powers, for there is no power but God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. All right? Here's the situation. God puts authority in my life, whether it's on the job, whether it's in the government, whether it's an elder. That authority should be primarily concerned with keeping the Adamic nature in check, and we all have that, and we're all going to sit back, and we're all going to sit down and not, not do what we need to do if we're not, if we're not kept in check and, and we walk in moderation and in discipline. So that's going to come in there as equation, in this equation. I've got evil that I need to be, be aware of in my life. Now, sometimes there will be things in my heart that I don't even see that's there. I'm not even aware of it. And God will begin to work on me, and my authority will come to me and say, listen, now what I'm sharing here is something that I have authority in my life. I have a pastor. He has not been shy. Y'all know Pastor Ballard. He's not shy. When he sees something that's not right, he waits. He comes to me. He's taught me something, and, and uh, I've noted the, the life and the walk that I walked with Pastor Hand, too. He was very much the same way. They would pray through the, the situation. Then at the right time, they would come to me and say, look, this is what you did. You're doing these things perfectly well, but you did this here that was offending to somebody. Or you handled this in the wrong way where other people were put on the spot and it need to, did not need to happen that way. And I'm standing there, I'm looking at them saying, really? Really, I didn't even see that. But see, they love me enough, God loves me enough, have put authority in my life to where I have a pastor, and see, by definition of what I'm speaking today, a pastor or authority that you have loves you enough and cares enough about you and your life where they're willing to speak into your life that, hey, this is not right, this is, is of darkness, and God is not going to reward this. This, on the other hand, is what we need to be doing, and then telling me the right way to do it, teaching me. And then I, I have to take it, and what am I going to do? All right, immediately, they say these things, and what happens? It's just like this. It comes in. It hits me. I'm wrong? Harriet, have you ever seen me wrong before? Don't answer that. <laughs> am I telling the truth? It's not, this, is, this can't be that I'm wrong. I mean, this, if I believe it, it's got to be right. 
if I walk in it, it's got to be the real deal. But still, we have the Adamic nature here, the bestial nature that will still rule and reign until we get to the place where we renew our minds, where we're sanctified and we begin to deal with these things that God shows us and we take authority over them. We cast those off. We put on the new as we remove the old. Okay, this is not anything new, right? We all know this. We all walk in it. So here the evil is dealt with, but then uh, the authority God puts in our life, he wants to reward the good that's there, and he's going to praise that. For he is a minister of God for thee, for your good. But if you do that which is evil, you need to be aware, you need to be afraid, because he's not going to bear that sword in vain. God puts authority in our life to speak in our life so that we will be corrected and move more in the image of Jesus. Now, you guys that are in business for yourself, all that are leaders on a higher level, perhaps than others, you need to be extremely careful because we get to the point where we handle these issues so much and make so many decisions that a lot of times we're not, not able. Sometimes it's like a machine gun. We've got to make those decisions. But we need godly counsel. We need somebody that's there to stand in the gap with us. It doesn't have to be the most knowledgeable person in the world. What you need is somebody that actually, truly loves you enough to speak the truth. They are praying for you, and they will hold you up. Now, I'm the pastor for some elders in some other churches that have been in, in ministry a lot longer than I have. And actually, literally, I thought about some of them being my pastor when Pastor Hen died. But they asked me to be their pastor. I thought it was, it was wild. But the reason was, was because of relationship. And they knew, I'm going to be loyal to them. I'm going I'm to be in the foxhole with them. And so that's the key for all of us that are elders, for all of us that are in the body of Christ and walking in unity in this season the way God wants us to. Am I a foxhole Christian or not? Am I still walking in the fence to my mom, my dad, that boss that I worked for when I was in the furniture store years ago that was a, a Pentecostal backslidden preacher who all he did was persecute Christians? in his bitterness? Is that what I'm going to allow to, to influence me now? Or am I coming to a place where I, I deal, because see, the offense is going to be in the damnic nature. It's going to be in the bestial side of me, in the flesh. It is not going to be in the spirit man. It is not going to be based on emotions. It's going to be based on flowing with Holy Ghost as he shows me what to do. And in spite of the emotions that I felt, that I've allowed to come in to keep me from entering into the right things at God, now I'm going to step out in faith, even as you stepped out in faith today when you came up here. That wasn't comfortable for some of the flesh that was here. It's not supposed to be. That's why it's a step of faith. It's trusting God. Do I trust God to put good leadership in my life that cares enough for me and loves me enough that when they speak to me, I'm going to do what they tell me to do? whether I agree with it or not at that point. Now, I'm not promoting myself as pastor for speaking in your life. I've got enough problems of my own to deal with. I don't want that. What I am going to do is share this with you, though. I have a pastor that I'm submitted to, and he knows it. If he tells me and he sees something, he tells me to do it, unless he's going to tell me to run around with my wife or commit sin or steal money from the church, or do some, something you know, that's just downright Ill, illegal, I'm going to do everything I can to do that. 
That's the, that's the authority I give in my life to me. I have a counselor. Actually, I've got two of those where I bounce different things off in business or other areas. Questions doctrinally, I bounce that off of them. And they speak in, into my life, but they are not at the level that pastor is. There's safety in a multitude of counsel, right? And then I have a teacher, a mentor, who is, is a, a Hebrew scholar, and he speaks into my life and teaches me things, and he really gets me out of my comfort zone because I know doctrinally what I've been taught all these years. And he'll throw something out there that's, uh, that will, will challenge me to get in that word and to dig it out and see what's really in there. Now, do we have somebody like this in our life? See, if I do this, I make the way. I make a bridge for everybody else here to, to, to move into this and to walk into it. That's where the safety is going to be in our lives. Submit hupotasso. Authority is appointed by God to deal with evil and with darkness. And it's also to reward good. If we are alive, authority of some type has is or will offend or be offending each one of us. What am I going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? How am I going to handle it? Jesus knew it. He told the, the uh, disciples that blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me in Matthew 11, verse 6. But over time, he got to the place where uh, at the Lord's Supper that night, he said, hey, listen, guys, every one of you 12, y'all are going to be offended with me tonight. Why? Well, some of them were expecting him to go in to be the, the a warrior king, destroying Rome and breaking that bondage of that government off of them. And they, the mom came, one of the moms came and said, hey, look, my two boys, still have been faithful. How about putting them right up there next to you, uh, number two, number three in the kingdom? Make them some prime ministers. That would be really neat. sweet, Jesus. You know, they'd be good to you. You know how moms are. They, yeah, here's my boy. He's got the goods. But no, that's not what he did. Others were zealots. They were part of the political party where they, uh, again, that's basically the same kind of mindset that they had. But in this case, like Judas, which I believe now after studying this word today, he was very much a part of getting into a place where he's going to have power, he was going to have money, he was going to be able to sit there with Jesus and help to rule the kingdom. That's what they were looking for. John, on the other hand, may have been one that had a little bit of a clue he understood agapio, the type of love that Jesus was giving him and he was giving it back to him. But yet you'll notice that he was one of the two sons or two men that were arguing about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. So he had some ambition issues himself. Every one of the 12 had problems of one sort or another, which you'd expect. Matthew 11, verse 6. Let's look, let's park here just for a minute. The word offended. The word offended. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. The word offended is scandalizo. That means to put a stumbling block before someone in a way it's to cause somebody to fall. Now in the Hebrew, remember these were Jews. So this is how they thought when they heard the word offended. Now the word offended means sin, it means to miss the way, it means to miss the goal, it means to miss the path. In other words, what they did, they had a rope that was, this was a picture in the Hebrew letters 
for this word that made up offended. They would take a rope and they would tie knots in it at the equal distances from each other. They would use those knots in this rope as a measuring device so that if I had, for example, they were going to have a archery contest and everybody was up there and they were all, you know, Robin Hood comes to my mind, the, the, the archery contest, and they released those arrows to the mark. They would take that rope and they would measure how far each person missed the bullseye based upon that standard of measure. What is my standard of measure? See, that's, that's what this all comes down to, is my standard of measure expectations of Jesus is going to uh, give me a financial prosperity, that black-on-black Cadillac, yes, whatever it is, the house I've been praying for and believing God for all my life. Finance is a pocket that will never run out of money coming out of it. You know, that's got to be God, right? See, there may be some false expectations we have. Because honestly, he says he's going to supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. But what this thing is all about, it's all about me getting serious about that relationship to the point that I died to self. That right, Bill? That I died to self to the point that when I come in here on Sunday, this should be all about me having poured myself out so much during the week that everywhere I've walked, I've been sensitive to the Holy Spirit. There will be people that I will pray with. There will be people that will have needs. I will determine to carry a certain amount of money as God speaks to me in my pocket at all times so that when I see somebody that's starving or somebody that's in need, that I am a ready vessel coming in this hand and going this way to sow into whoever the needs has, whoever that person is. I will confess, I will plant the seed of God's word and testify of how God's healed me today or healed me in the last few weeks, how God has provided for me all of my needs all the way through my life and living for him, how he reveals himself to me, and it's glorious. Because, see, I'm a carrier of the presence of God. I'm a vessel of his love, and that should be just overflowing. So when I come in here Sundays, it's to get refilled and get ready to go and get back out there. It's not about us having FFF and us having Holy Ghost uh, goosebump service, and now let's get back into it next Sunday when we come in. Uh, a real immaculate cathedral. You know, we're going to build another building. It's going to be u- utilitarian, which means basically very useful, very easy to, to, to get in and out of, very, and it would meet the needs of our people. But we're not going to build something that's going to be the most immaculate building in Lee County. Just when there's not going to do that. That's not, not what we need. We're going to use, uh, build a building that's going to meet the needs of our people where we could carry this gospel worldwide. That's what this is about. Everybody have ears to hear what I'm about to say. I'm thoroughly convinced in this season that the church, we're going to become more obscure. Fountain Gate Church is going to become more obscure. But Brian Lockins, Gershom, Mac, uh, Charlie, Eric, Glenn, Every one of us here individually, God wants us to become more out in the front, in the forefront, more visible as we walk the walk, as we go into Publix, and we're over there trying to pick out which cabbage we're going to get. And somebody comes over there, and they're, they're crying. And they just got the word on their telephone that their, their uh, cousin just died. What are you going to do? It didn't just happen that you were sent there at that particular point in time, 
It's called a providential appointment, and God has sent you to minister to somebody, and you don't know if they're even saved or not. You know they're hurting. That's what we're here to, to heal the brokenhearted. Is that right? Am I making that up? But if I've been offended, and I'm holding on that bitterness and that hurt, I'm going to be more prone to, to go by my feelings and my emotions and my, my opinions and not reach out to that person like God wants me to. Help us, Lord. I don't know if anybody else has ever done that before. What is your standard of measure? What are your expectations concerning God, the Messiah? Do my expectations actually match the reality of his kingdom, or do I have false expectations? Do I worship a false Jesus that doesn't line up with what this word actually says? Again, Luke 7, 23. Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in Jesus. Who did Jesus offend? When you get in the word, this, this, you know, we could look at these scriptures, but I'm just going to save time here. One group were the um, Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. We know those as religious people. We know that they are the ones that believe what I just read right here. Yeah, man, they were, they were uh, three wise men. We know that because of our traditions. Please keep in mind that the form of Judaism when Jesus walked on the earth was totally, absolutely corrupted from the form that was given on Mount Sinai to Moses when those commandments that were given. By the way, there are 15 plus or minus commandments of God's word, and where we said the ten, there are 10 commandments. And really in the Greek, I'm sorry, the, G, the Hebrew, it doesn't even say they're laws. It doesn't call them commandments. It actually calls them the two tablets, and it calls them the instructions. Instructions on how to live. That's what it actually says. So he gives us instructions on things that are going to be, where we're, we're going to uh, go ahead and we're going to prosper, and society's going to have uh, order to it. That's what that's all about. And there will be fruit that will come forth from that. All right, so another group of followers, uh, those that misunderstood. As Jesus was teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, that totally blew everybody's mind that was there. So they misunderstood what he was saying because he said, I am the lamb that's, that is, will be consumed at Passover, giving you the redemptive blood. That's, what, that's all he was saying. It was symbolic. And he even says it's a spirit in his life, in that story, in that, that commentary, in that narrative. But they misunderstood it. That Some of them thought, man, he's talking about cannibalism here. I don't know about that. So they took off and left. Some of them had it, uh, tradition so steeped in them that, you know, he's touching the Passover. You know, I don't know if I want to be around somebody that's going to touch my traditions at this level or not. He's talking about breaking tradition here. That's not what he was talking about. But that's what they took, and they misunderstood that. So these were followers that were offended because they did not understand. And a lot of times we don't understand what he's speaking. Another group that was offended was everybody else. Basically, when you get out to it, uh, they, they were offended at him when he went back into Nazareth and he was preaching to them or sharing with them. Actually, what he did, he read from the, the, the scriptures there, and they didn't believe he was who he said he was because they knew he came from a, a family of low estate. They didn't have money. 
They weren't well versed in the word. He didn't have any education, and they knew that. They knew his brothers. They knew his sisters. They knew all about him coming up and growing up as a kid. They didn't recognize the, the glory of God being on them because they were so removed from it themselves. They were in the traditions of, the, of that Judean, Judaic system. So now they, they look at him and say, man, I'm not going to listen to you. You're from Lochapoca. You guys from Beulah, I gave y'all a break. Y'all should say amen on that. Uh, I didn't get many, many amens from that group. And praise God. But that's really what it was. They were, some of them were envious because they grew up. They knew him. And now they're seeing great wisdom spewing out of this man's mouth like he's a, a great scholar, a great rabbi. They're seeing power manifesting in his life. Hey, I grew up with this guy. When we played on the football team, I was a better athlete and I was a star. He was a, be- a bench warmer. Can you imagine? Whatever the context was, they thought of themselves more highly than they did of Jesus. And so that was another group that was there that were offended at him. And then we get into the parable of the sower, where we have a, 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 the seed is sown into an area where there, is, there are stones. It's hard places. And the seed germinates but the roots are not able to sink down deep because of the, the hard pan the, of, under the soil there. They can't penetrate and get the nourishment up like they need to. And that's what happens with us when we don't get in the Word, we get saved, and, hey, Tia, what happened with you last week? Holler it out. I, holler. I got saved. Amen. Holler it again. Louder. I got yes, she got saved. Radically saved. Her, your face is glowing. You got the Holy Ghost all over you. Amen? Tia was the one that God was speaking to last week when we had those words up here and she got saved in the service last week. Amen? Radically changed. Never being the same anymore. Now, Tia, you're going to have to get in the Bible. You're going to have to start worshiping. Learn how to pray. And you've got these two, these, these house parents that will help oversee that with you. That will help get you equipped where you'll be able to stand and you'll grow. And you won't be like this is talking about here where when the, the roots are sunk down, so if you don't get into the, the Word and in prayer and in worship, it won't sustain you. What's happened is real. When you got born again, you got born again. It's the real deal. But there's some changing that has to take place in you, and especially in your thinking, and they'll teach you how to do that. So in this case, these are people that called themselves Christians, and they would go to probably church on uh, Christmas, maybe Easter, maybe on another day in there, baby dedication or something like that. That'd be about it. But they never got into the Word and never grabbed a hold of it. Reasons that we would get offended with Jesus in this season. He demands too much. The cost, the price, the persecution, whatever it is, it's too much. He doesn't meet my expectations. He doesn't meet my expectations. Okay, I'm standing in the the living room. I've just walked in. My wife is laying on the sofa, and she's she's been weeping for hours. We had one of the students in the school that was staying with us at that time, and she was over there trying to tend to her. And she just had a miscarriage. I can't remember which baby it would have been that was there. And that shook me to my very core because my expectation of Messiah was 
I will never have to deal with suffering at this level with the loss of a child because we're living for God with all we know and all, all of our being, all my strength. So what happens is I walk in and I see that the baby, we lost that baby. It shook me for about two weeks, literally. Can I explain that? No. Even to this day, I'm going to ask him. There'll be a day I'm going to ask him. I know this, though. At the end of that two-week period, I finally came to a resolution within myself. God is God, regardless. Messiah is Messiah, regardless. Whatever it takes, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to trust him, and we're going to move on from here. Now, see, I didn't have an understanding of, of uh, suffering and affliction at that time. In fact, it was a name it, claim it. You know, we're, we're pushing in. We'll, it's it's going to always be smooth sailing because I'm a believer now, and God's going to take care of me. It's the furthest thing from the truth because Jesus, he guarantees us we're going to have persecution and affliction and trials and tribulation to walk through. But what we don't hear about a lot of times is that's going to come into your heart and there's going to be something that's going to be cut out, something that's going to change, so that you, when you come on the other side of that, if you do not get offended and hang on to that and turn away from God, you're going to be a different person when you get on that side. That difference is going to be tremendous toward the road of, of coming more and more into the image of Christ, and that's what that suffering is all about. It doesn't say that we take up our cross daily and it be all fun and games. That never has been the picture. The first century church understood this. They were birthed under fire. There was great tribulation. At any moment, their life was at stake. Perhaps we're moving back into that season now, in this season. I prayed about it. I've asked God, okay, where are we headed to? What's going on? What is the next step? You know what he keeps telling me? <laughs> he keeps telling me, trust me. Okay. I've trusted him all the way along. And now he's told me to trust him again. So all I know to do is to trust him. Offense has no place where in the past he didn't live up to my false expectations. He doesn't show up in time, on time. That may be another reason that I'd be offended. So let's move in here to the Last Supper. Let's look at the triclinium, see what happens here, and uh, get a picture of some examples of some of the, uh, the, the people in God's Word and how they were offended. So you have primarily, we've got three players we're going to talk about over the next few minutes, and I'm not going to draw this out for the rest of the day, but uh, this gives a little bit of insight to the nature of man. And this really is a book of anthropology more than it is theology, and how God uh, deals with man in our, in our need. So you have the uh, situation where Jesus tells two of his apostles to go out and find a room for them to go meet. It's the Passover. They're going to go in, they're going to have their meal that night. Now, the, the type of seating arrangement was called a triclinium. It's a table, it's U-shaped. It's set up where it's low to the floor, about 10, maybe 12 inches up off the floor itself. You have individuals that are seated around it when they eat. It's more of a Roman traditional type thing than it is Jewish, honestly, back during that era. So the, the pattern is that when the people would sit down around that table to eat, they would actually be on their left hip. They would be raised up. 
their right arm would actually be what they would be using. So they'd be kind of like this, where this is a table. But they would reach over here and they would begin to pull food. And everybody along that table would help because they'd use their right arm and they would move food around. And sometimes there would be something to dip in back there and they would take the bread uh, and dip it in there and give it to the other one to eat. And they were very close to, to each other. And so they were able to have a covenant fellowship with each other as they ate. So the picture is this, by the patterns that we see in God's Word, that the first one sitting on this table, and this is the way it was going here, it was a U-shape. On the outside was John. He was here in this first place. He would be the second one in the place of honor. This would be the seat of honor would be next, and that was Jesus. He was hitting this way. And then next to him in the, no, he was, yeah, he was like the host. That's the word, the host. But in the seat of honor, Behind Jesus was Judas. Now, there are some scholars and theologians that believe that Judas was supposed to have been the primogenitor, that he had the goods, that he was very talented, that he was, a, I don't know. I didn't know the man. I'm just going by what I've read about some of the scholars that are out there. But we know that he got offended in a big way. And we know that when he got offended, it turned him to the point where when Jesus did what he did that night, it was done. He was going to rebel. Now, on the other side, I'm going to come back to Judas in just a second, those other three men. On this side, Peter was leaned up, and he's at the last seat, or first seat on this side, whichever way you want to look at it. And that's where he was located. That was the seat of dishonor, or least honor. That's a better way to put it. What was he supposed to do seated at that place? What was Peter supposed to have done when everybody came in that room that night, seated in that seat? That's the seat of, a, of somebody that has a, the demeanor and the role of a servant. You see, when you sit at that seat, you're supposed to serve everybody else, and you're supposed to wash their feet when they come in. Okay? That should be an aha. Aha moment right there. That's why he was so torn up when Jesus after the meal goes around and begins to wash everybody's feet, and, and he says, you, no, don't, don't wash my feet. He was under total conviction, guys. He was under total conviction at that point. So that's, that's part of what the story is here. Let's come back to this man. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Okay, first, you've got John is here. He is the apostle whom Jesus loved. And it said that he had his, his head on his, his bosom. Literally, he didn't have his head on his chest. That's the way that you sat. And that, I mean, he was just, if he was going to talk to him, he'd have to turn like this, and maybe they could see each other, but not very well. He couldn't see anybody around this way. He could see Peter over there, though. Okay? So then you have Jesus, and then you have Judas here. So let's look a little bit further at the story and how the, the, the story plays out with these three individuals. Their reaction that night, their relationship with Jesus, their response going forward. In uh, John 13, they've already had the meal, verse 12. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said to them, know you what I've done to you. You call me master, everybody say master, rabbi. That's a rabbi is what that is. That's a teacher. And Lord, and Lord. 
You call me master and Lord. And you say, well, for so am I. So both names were there. Both roles were there. That's what everybody should be looking at with Jesus. And that's kurios is the, the Greek word for Lord. That's supreme leader. That's, that's the one I look to to, uh, to oversee everything in my life, to be the one I go to. If I then be your Lord and master and have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, another part of this is Peter and John were the two that were talking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. So you now you have those two guys are put on the spot because Jesus is going in now and telling them it's not about lording it over anybody. It's about serving everybody. Peter's sitting over here getting all busted up inside because he knew he's supposed to be doing this, and he kind of slipped by and didn't get it done that night or tried to, and Jesus put him on the spot. Because, see, Jesus knew that, that within Peter, he did not have the mentality and demeanor of being a servant. And he has, you have to do that if you're going to be out and you're going to be ministering to other people. So, verse 15, I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he is that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy will you be. Now, Judas was a treasurer of the ministry. He was very trusted, very talented and gifted, as I said. He's one of the original 12. He was sent out on the mission with the other 12, and they saw signs and wonders and miracles. He cast out demons. He'd operate on the power of God. He was the real deal. He was like everybody else in that group. They were hand-chosen by the Messiah, and he said, come, follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. And he went through the, the same training. But he had things in his heart. He never did look at the Messiah the way that he was supposed to look at him. And he got offended. He got offended as a result. Peter, the oldest son of Zebedee, a fisherman, the brother of Andrew, he was a, kind of a rough and tumble man's man, emotional, had a big heart. He was extremely aggressive. He was a natural speaker. He had a tendency of letting his passions rule over him, which included fear and doubt as he stepped out of the boat, for example, on the, on the water. And then he started looking at the sea, and the fear and doubt came in. But we know he did mighty works in the long run. He also was called a son of thunder, a son of thunder, even as John was. Why were they called sons of thunder? This is kind of funny, really, when you look at it. They had gone in a village, and they had rejected Jesus, and they're walking out down the road, and John and Peter look at him and say, hey, Jesus, let's call thunder, and let's call lightning down on that city, because they rejected you. You ever had anybody call you lightning, or call you Bubba, or call you, how many nicknames? We've got a lot of legacies in here, a lot of legends where somebody does something that's just stood out over the years, they were, they were legend. I mean, that's really what they were. All the guys knew it when they said, Sons of Thunder over there. Yeah, these guys, they're the ones that call lightning down. We're called, supposed to have uh, the love of God going in. Lightning with the love of God. That doesn't quite go hand in hand, does it? All right, well, John, the youngest, he was very loyal. He was known for his compassionate love of God. He had previous connections, and this is questionable with some of the, the scholars that are out there, but that's okay. Uh, personally, this is, is my opinion, so I want to clarify that, that he had connections with a high priest family, perhaps through his family, and again, he was a son of thunder. Peter and John were two of the three inner circle guys. Judas, perhaps, was being primed 
to go out and to be the man, to be the one that was going to be uh, spearheading everything. And Peter eventually steps in and God, God raises up Paul. Now, the problem going back to Judas is this. Previous to this event that took place, he's looking for a position of power, a position of money. And we know he's got a tendency of reaching in and get a couple extra dollars out of that bag for himself. That's how we know he's got a problem with mammon. That means he despises the things of God because you can't love mammon and the things of God at the same time. So they go a few days before this, six days earlier, and they're at a house, and Mary comes in with a very expensive uh, vase of spikenard, of nard. It takes it, one version on his head, another version on the feet, but she pours this out, and the perfume just permeates the whole room. Now, what this was, this was the diary. This was an extremely valuable piece of property that she poured out on his feet. And at that point, this man who's looking at the Messiah to lead him into a place of, of uh, wealth and of power, he says, y'all leave her alone. Because they started complaining, and Judas was right in the middle of that. Hey, we could have taken this money, and we could have given this to the poor. But no, that was not what it was about. You see, Jesus was giving. He understood that. He came giving all the way through. And that was what he was trying to put in his men. And that shook up Judas' whole worldview that shook up his false expectations of what Messiah was going to do, who he was going to be. And he's now at a place where he's coming at a realization that maybe this is not what I bought into. Now we've rolled right on over into that night. And Jesus, who he looks at, is going to be that warrior king to go out and overcome Rome. Instead of doing that, now he's washing people's feet. I'm offended. This is not what I expected Jesus, the king, the Messiah to do. How many of us have those false expectations? You see, that's what they were dealing with right there. So now, Satan comes into him. That was, for him, was the last straw. He goes in and, uh, you know, he, some people look at him as a champion because he had to do what he did for everything to come, come forward like it did, uh, perhaps. But at any rate, Jesus knew that there was going to be somebody that was going to come against him. So verse 21, when Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on his bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. John understood agapio love. That's the picture of him and the little bit we've got here in God's word about him. He had already gotten it. He was watching it, walking in agape love. He had that kind of relationship with Jesus. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. Now remember, John's laying here like this. He's on this elbow, and the only person he really can see is Peter right across the way over here. Jesus says, okay, somebody here is going to uh, uh, go ahead and they're going to betray me. And so Peter's here, and he says, ask him who it is. Ask him who it is. He wanted to know. Okay, so here we go. We're putting it real how this thing plays out. And he then lying on Jesus' breast said to him, verse 25, who is it, Lord? So I don't know if the, if the rest of the guys could even hear it. This was between three of them at this point. And Jesus said, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. He reaches over, gets a piece of bread, dips it, and he hands it over his left shoulder, and, and Judas takes it and eats it, just like that. So it's a picture. 
So now Peter's sitting there saying, oh, my God. John's sitting there saying, oh, my God. This is somebody. No, they didn't know. They literally had no idea they had put their trust in this man. And there are times that every one of us here will come into a testing time. We've been a pillar in the church perhaps for years. There's still something in us that we have not allowed Holy Ghost to come in and to touch. It's very dangerous to do that. We've got to move to the place where we die to self, and that's inclusive of those areas. And that's what happened in this man's life. He got shaken all to pieces, and he turns and he rebels, and he comes against Jesus after this. And Satan enters into him. All these guys, remember, they were not born again. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Now, no man at the table knew what the intent was when he spake and telling him, what you, do, what you do, go quickly. And some of them thought it was something business-wise, giving money to the poor, whatever. And then having received the sop, he went out immediately, and it was not. So now you see this man is, is Judas. He's offended, and now he's turned, okay? False expectations. And then verse 37, and Peter said to him, Lord, why cannot I, I follow you? He began to talk about his death coming up. I will lay down my life for your sake. And we know that, that Judas, I'm sorry, Peter denied Christ three times. And he said, that's what's about to happen with you. So let's move on as the story progresses. They leave the upper room. Uh, they go up to Gethsemane. Jesus is there praying. He tells the guys, come on over here. I want y'all praying too. And they fall asleep. We know the story. And over a period of time, Jesus prays through. He goes back. And lo and behold, he says, Okay, guys, it's over. Let's go. And he looks up, and there comes uh, Judas. And he doesn't come with just a few people. The numbers here, if you go in and study this in the history, they had a group of SWAT team. That's literally what these guys were, were made up like. They were heavy military equipment was on these guys. There were 300 to 600 of them that were temple police and soldiers. And they come in, and they surround these 12 men in a garden. Sound a little like uh, overkill. They've got flashlights uh, and beacons that will shine in the dark. They fully expected an armed resistance, apparently, to take place when they got there. So, Peter, uh, I'm sorry, Judas walks up, and, and this is what he says. This, is, this lets you know exactly where this man was. Hail, Master. In, in another version, it says, Master, Master. That word master means rabbi. He, he kisses him, but he says, Rabbi. He doesn't say anything about Lord. He says, Teacher. So he, all the way through, this man called Judas only looked at Jesus as a teacher. He never looked at him as the Lord. He never really looked at him as Messiah. He understood he's a great motivator, great speaker, sure. But he never received in that way. And the thing that's interesting is the way that Jesus responds to him. This is in Mark 14. He said, said back to him, friend. He said, friend, wherefore are you come? That word friend does not mean somebody that you have uh, a close relationship with, it, with them. It means somebody that you, is your comrade Maybe you play basketball with them that you grew up and y'all call each other at night and go play or play golf together. But not somebody that's really a friend that's an intimate, close relationship with you. Jesus knew who he was and what he was at that point. 
The military comes in, they start grabbing, start doing what they do. They grabbed a hold of John, and he took off running, and it tore his robe off of him. He wasn't going to stay. These guys were all, every one of the 12 is like a bunch of cockroaches, and you open up a room, and you turn the light on, and they're on the floor, and they all scatter. That's what the apostles did. They were all offended because now Messiah is turned, and he's being, put in, uh, being captured and taken to the high priest. Then they go on into the, the place of, of uh, the cross. Even before that, they go over to the, the high priest's house. And Peter's there. He's allowed in because John's got a, a, a connection. John goes too. John goes too. We don't hear anything about him, but Peter denies the Christ while he's there three times. He goes out and he weeps and leaves. Then they, they go and they, they uh, crucify him on the cross. While he's on the cross, the one that loves Jesus is there. And Jesus looks at him and says, I give you my mom. I want you to take care of her. He becomes the primogenitor of the family then, basically. If he wasn't really in the family, he was at that point. And she becomes the apostle of apostles, historically, by the way. Mary was a powerful, powerful witness for Christ, as history lessons teach us. Between her and John, they were a dynamic team, and, uh, especially in Ephesus and other places that they went to. Okay, so uh, we know that, uh, that John goes ahead, he gets, gets responsibility for Mary at the cross. Jesus dies. The next, or three days later, he's the first apostle to run to the tomb. Peter runs as well. Peter's the first one to go in. So still, both of those guys, they were hanging, but they were not totally back at the place where they were not offended with what Jesus had done. So uh, going a step further here, repentance and restoration. Jesus experienced, I'm sorry, Judas experienced Jesus merely as a teacher. He's a moral, ethical motivator, and he was expecting a warrior king in a position of money, honor, power, and authority. Is Jesus my sugar daddy? Do I expect him to bless everything when I tithe? I'm doing that because I'm going to get money back. You're missing it. It's beyond that. I'm doing that because I'm glorified and magnifying him and worshiping him with my life. Peter, as we see prior to the ascension, he goes and gets all the guys they jump back on the boat and go back out to fish. They didn't just go out on a fishing expedition for an afternoon either. They were going back to work. He was going back to the world, and he was taking John with him. And Jesus shows up out there. And Jesus says to, to Peter on the bank toward the latter part of that narrative, are you my friend? Are you, do you love me? Do you Go out and feed the sheep. Tend to the lambs. Feed them too. And Peter, he's saying, do you agapio me, Peter? Do you love me sacrificially like I love you? And Peter looked at him and said, you know I'm your friend. You know I'm your friend. And then Jesus the third time says, are you my friend, Peter? He said, yes, I'm your friend. Then you go out, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. So we see that John understood sacrificial giving. Peter was his friend. But that was enough. They go out and they turn the world upside down with the other apostles and do what God's called him to do, Judas ends up going out and hanging himself. And the end of the story, well, it was, was a gracious. And that's what will happen if we're offended. 
we will walk in a place where eventually there will be death that will manifest in our life. The other apostles, what happened to them? Well, Mark 16, 15 through 18, go into all the world. They were able to come to a place where they showed up at the upper room. They were faithful. They waited for power from on high. They were there in the day of Pentecost when the Holy Ghost fell. And we know within 24 hours, 3,000 people were led to Jesus. They were faithful because now they've gotten over that offense, whatever it was that, that caused them to, to scatter and not even show up at any of these events afterwards. Now they're on fire for God. They've gotten over it, you see. So what happens here? Peter, son of thunder, he ministered all the way along the east Mediterranean coast. He went to Rome and became the first pope there and ministered all in that area along that peninsula. Andrew, his brother, went to Iran in the Black Sea area, the Caucasus in Bulgaria. He was uh, in the Bosporus area and he, he primarily preached to, to Greeks. James, the brother of John, ended up in Jerusalem and he was the first to possibly martyred there before he could leave the area. John, a son of thunder, Ephesus, Jerusalem, Gaul, France, Britain, Italy, Spain. He died eventually in Ephesus of an old age. Not every one of them were, were crucified, by the way. Some historians teach that, but not all of them were. And uh, we've been to Ephesus and we saw, we walked the same streets he probably walked on when he was there. Philip went to Iran, the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea, all of Asia Minor. He was martyred in Hierapolis. Thaddeus, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Thaddeus, Judas, whichever name you go by with him, was in Judea, Samaria, Adamea, Armenia, Syria, Libya, Persia. Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, he went by both names. He ended up going all the way over to northern India, Turkey, Armenia, Iran. Thomas was in Iraq and Iran, uh, the Median Empire, India, Afghanistan, and even went to Russia. That's doubting Thomas. They believed enough in what they had walked in and the relationship they had and gotten over the fence where they literally went all over the world and turned the world upside down. With 11 men, even uh, Matthias, and when he went out, he was a part of the, the, the history there, although we don't hear much about him in, in, uh, in the Bible after he's put in. But he went to Romania, Macedonia, and he went and ministered to the Normans up in the, the, the northern part of Europe and had an impact there. And they eventually moved on down to Britain as well. James went to Spain, Britain, and Ireland. Matthew was in Ethiopia, Iran, and India. Simon went to Egypt, Persia, Cyrene, Libya, Mauritania, Great Britain. These were the ones that were offended, but now they go out and they change the world. And we're sitting here because these guys were faithful. They got over themselves. So what is it I'm offended in? That's what we've got to make a determination of. What has Jesus not done that I was expecting him to do? What has my mom and dad done to me that is keeping me from stepping out and, and doing what I know is the right thing, and what God has shown me that he wants me to do? What about that boss? what he did, that coach, he said, I've never amount to anything. I couldn't ever play for him. I'm going to tell you, Jesus, if he's your coach, he said, he'll tell you, yeah, you can play for me, son. Come here. I'm going to anoint you and I'm going to empower you to do what you need to do. So let's go ahead. Let's, let's get back into some worship. Let's see what God's going to do here. I know this went a little bit long today, but I do know this. This is a word for this time.
that if we're going to accomplish what God wants us to do in the, the days ahead of us, because states of tribulation is probably right here around the corner of one sort or another. Always is. We're, we're guaranteed that. So let's worship. Let's see what God's going to do. Prophets, y'all come on up. And uh, elders, y'all, we'll call you up here in just a moment.